specializing in child and adolescent psychiatry. He began his medical training at the Medical College of Wisconsin, completed his adult psychiatry residency at the University of Cincinnati, and child psychiatry fellowship at Harvard UCLA in Los Angeles. In addition to our speakers, we have other doctors on the line who will be available to assist in answering questions. They include Dr. John Moore, who is an orthopedic surgeon in Sarasota, Florida. Uh, his an elderly patient post-surgery who refused to go home, chose a nursing home and rehab center over going back to her own home because she did not want to be in prison there without contact with others. We also have Dr. Lionel Lee, who's an emergency medicine uh, medical physician in Riverside, California. Uh, until about two weeks ago, he now resides in Arizona and is practicing medicine there. Uh, he sees differences in what the media says about the two areas, yet does not see a difference in the kind of medical cases. We also have with us Dr. Andrew Zach, who's practicing uh, anesthesiology in Dallas. Uh, his mother now currently is on a feeding tube uh, last month because of uh, fear prevented her from getting treatment for stroke. So we have a lot of experts on the line with us, and since to listen to them and listen to me. I will turn things over to Jenny Beth, and then we'll hear from Dr. Gold, Dr. Williams, and Dr. McDonald. Jenny Beth, go right ahead. Thank you, Keith, and thank you to the reporters for being on the call today. Um, in the last couple of months, I met Dr. Simone Gold, who will speak in just a moment, and have been getting information from her about COVID-19 and making sure that as I and Tea Party Patriots pushed to reopen the country, that we were doing so in a responsible manner and one that respected the, the serious nature of COVID-19 and also um, the need for our country to begin to reopen. During that process, she has sent a letter to President Trump that was signed by over a 1,000 physicians warning of the mass casualty event the lockdowns were creating. In helping her compile that letter, I read a lot of the comments that the doctors wrote when signing the letter and heard of very real life, very real life consequences that the lockdowns were creating that the media was not reporting, such as um, permanent blindness um, because people were afraid to go get treatment when they had sudden vision loss or um, because their doctor's office w was not open. A, more than usual, a larger number than usual amputations because people with diabetic wounds were not getting those treated. And I learned of one 48-year-old father of three who cut his hand on a can. And in cutting his hand on a can, he did not go to the emergency room to get treatment because we'd all been told we were trying, we, in the effort to flatten the curve, we needed to protect our hospitals. That was one of the most important things doing as we were working to flatten the curve. And his local physician was, that office was closed. Eventually, the cut became so infected that he did seek medical treatment in the hospital. He was admitted into the ICU and 12 hours after being admitted into the ICU, he died from an infection from a cut on his hand. And the doctor who wrote about this said he would never forget the look on this patient's wife's face in what she said, which was, I don't understand. It was just a cut on his hand. I don't understand. How can this be happening? And the doctor said it should not be happening. And 
fear is what prevented him from initially speaking medical treatment when he needed it. And when I read that, I realized we needed to do everything that we could to document what these doctors were seeing in an effort to help reduce the fear people had of going to the doctor and of seeking emergency treatment at the hospital or any kind of treatment at the hospital if they were being advised to do so. I do not think that most of the mainstream media understands the problems that the fear is creating. And I thought it had died down, and in the last week, I've seen this talk of a second wave, and I'm concerned that people across the country will begin to be afraid again, and it may cause them to have other non-COVID-related medical issues. So with that, I was very happy to see that the vice president wrote a letter explaining why the number of people who are testing positive has increased, largely because we are doing so many more um, tests for COVID-19 right now. In fact, we are now doing around 500,000 tests a day, whereas in early March or near the end of February, we were only doing around 8,000 tests a day in the country. With that many more tests happening, we're going to find people who do test positive who may not even know that they have symptoms. It may have, and we don't know what would have happened if we'd done 500,000 tests a day in February because we cannot turn the clock back. Um, and I asked these doctors to get on to talk about Vice President Pence's letter or his op-ed and also what they are experiencing firsthand. And that's what this call is about. So thank you very much. And now we're going to Dr. Simone Gold. Hi, good morning, everybody. Um, thank you so much. Yes, I um, practice emergency medicine in uh, mostly in Los Angeles, but also in Arizona. <clears throat> the, I got active in this issue because what I was seeing on the ground was so different than what I was reading in the media and hearing from my friends and family. So according to the media, when this first started in March, let's say, is when people started paying attention, um, you know, it, this was just such a catastrophic situation for our hospitals. And yet, as an emergency physician, our hospital census had plummeted. We were seeing maybe 50% census. This went on for, I'd say, about six weeks, seven weeks. In fact, we're still not back to normal here in June. And so I started to jump in mostly because there was such a disconnect between what the public thought, which is that hospitals were overwhelmed, and what the reality was on the ground. I'm aware that New York and some other hotspots had a different experience for about three weeks. I did my training in New York. I stayed in touch with people in New York. And from them, they told me it was really, really difficult, but the really difficult part was limited to three or four weeks. Um, but everywhere else in the country, except a few hotspots, the hospitals were empty. And it was distressing to know that all those patients were not getting care. You know, the New England Journal of Medicine even commented in May that about 40% of stroke patients went missing. Similar comments in the Journal of Cardiology, which said about 40% of heart attack patients went missing. And this dovetailed completely with what I was seeing on the ground. So the disconnect between the media and the reality on the ground was a huge problem throughout this. And I'm very concerned that we're about to see the same thing again, where the media is really ginning up the concept of a second wave, but yet 
the data doesn't support it. So I always look to the data. So I've looked at the L.A. County uh, Department of Public Health. Um, I looked to what our governor said, and I'll just start there. The governor was quoted a couple of days ago as saying the hospitalizations remain stable. That, I think, was the most important statement in the L.A. Times interview. Uh, a, a writer was writing about the situation in L.A. County, and he was making the case that it was scarier than it was. And yet, in the body of that article, he said, Governor Newsom said hospitalizations are really remaining stable. In L.A. County, they have a sentence that said the highest number of new cases have been reported in a day. That's this week. Followed by, however, 600 of those cases are from a backlog of test results. Which brings me to the major point, which Jenny touched upon, which is that there's so many cases, uh, there are so many people being tested every day. Of course, we're going to have more positive cases. In my own practice, uh, one of the things I do is I work on a Native American reservation. I was working two days ago, and there was a family of 11, because they live in very close quarters. All 11 came in to get tested. It turns out 10 of the 11 were positive. One of the 11 had symptoms. So those are all going to go down as positive cases. One had symptoms. Even that one person who had symptoms wasn't nearly sick enough to require hospitalization. So I need the media to understand that most of the case numbers of increased, of increased numbers are because of increased testing and increased access to testing. And the final point I want to make is we can never forget the reason we started the lockdown in the first place was to protect our healthcare system. Very important, quote unquote, flattening the curve the concept of flattening the curve is to protect our healthcare system. Specifically, we should not overwhelm our ability to take care of hospitalized patients. Most importantly, ICU patients and ICU ventilators with ICU nurses. That's what it is. Increasing numbers of cases that don't result in hospitalizations or ICU admissions or ventilator need is not a public health catastrophe. That's what we need to keep our eye on, and those numbers have not increased. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Gold. Uh, next up is Dr. David Williams in uh, Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Go ahead, doctor. Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, my name is David Williams. I accept two papers that have gone out, one, The Truth and Lies of Coronavirus, about coronavirus, and, and the follow-up was a ray of hope, and definitely address the adverse effects of, of our response to the virus in terms of health, as you've already heard from, from those two that have spoken. But one of the things I wanted to talk about, of course, was the same thing as uh, Dr. Gold in terms of the increased testing. Um, we've heard about football players that have come back. Every single campus is testing every single player. So in Alabama, we've tested Alabama and Auburn. You're talking about 100 players plus per squad um, with backups and, and walk-ons and that sort of thing. And you've had a total of eight or nine positive, none of which, of course, knew they had it. If you're going to have surgery in Alabama, you have to have a test ahead of time. So you're testing every single person who's going to have an outpatient surgery. The vast majority, of course, are test negative, but even those who do test positive don't know they have it. And now they've decided that uh, even though they've got one patient uh, with very mild symptoms in a company of 400 people, we have companies sending their entire workforce to be tested because of this irrational fear that's been created around this disease. And, of course, if you're testing everybody at a company who's not sick, if you're testing everybody on a football team who's not sick, everybody's going to have surgery who's not sick, you're going to pick up some positives. But none of those are cases that are going to lead to hospitalization. Um, so, yes, the numbers are up. 
things in the article that you know, they, they have every state except three have positive test rates under 10 percent. I, I can't believe the positive test rates aren't you know under one or two percent because you're literally testing hundreds and hundreds of people who who are asymptomatic every single day in, in West Alabama alone. So that would be one of the cases, and the other would be uh, we have had um, we've had our our spike in Alabama. We've had legitimate um, cases here. We, it is a real disease, as uh, Miss Martin correctly pointed out, and nobody here wants to minimize the, the suffering. Um, and there are patients that I'm aware of who have been hospitalized because of that, and we never want to take away from their suffering. But we have seen the spike in Alabama, and what you've seen are, are two different things. You'll see the spike in nursing home, which will lead to a spike in a prison, and none of them are sick. You know, so it's a dichotomy of this disease. You almost have to be ill to become ill with this disease. And no hospital in Alabama has become close to being overwhelmed. And yet there's been articles about our city, uh, Birmingham and Montgomery, that suggested that we're just on the peak of running out of beds. Well, in our hospital, for instance, they opened a COVID unit that they closed because they never used it. And, yes, the ICU they were using was getting close to being full. But the COVID unit that they designated hasn't been used ever. You know, so, so it's never been close to overwhelm. I didn't see the script for the Tim Scott stuff. Um, thank you, Doctor. If everybody else would, would mute, unless you're speaking, I'd really appreciate that. There is a little bit of background noise. We really appreciate uh, you bearing with us. Thank you. Doctor, uh, if you weren't finished, go right ahead. No, I'm good. That's good. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Williams. Um, next up will be Dr. Mark McDonald. Go ahead, sir. Good morning. This is Dr. Mark McDonald. I treat children in a psychiatric practice in Los Angeles. And as I had mentioned in previous interviews, I lost my first patient to the government response to coronavirus back in April, uh, just a couple weeks after reading an article in Los Angeles Times that was of an interview by the director of the D.D. Hirsch Suicide Prevention Hotline, just about a mile from my office, who noted that in the month of February, she had received 80 phone calls to her center in the month of March, she had received 1,800. That scared me because I knew that the people that I treat are the people that make those phone calls. And sure enough, uh, soon after that, a healthy 31-year-old patient who was otherwise well up until around the end of February but was sent home from her university and blocked from her AA meetings and cut off from her therapist, overdosed on fentanyl and was found unresponsive in her apartment uh, and, uh, and didn't make it. That has not happened to me. Um, uh, psychiatry is not a field where people die in general, certainly not young people. Since then, and up until just yesterday, I have been incredibly concerned, particularly on the impact of children, by the fear that is still here with us and that continues as long as we don't fully reopen our society. A father came to me just, uh, just yesterday. He has four children. Two of them are in my practice. One of them is autistic. And he said that he's sending his wife and one of his daughters back to Israel because they can't manage here in Los Angeles. She has no access to her school. She has no access to therapists. She has no access to caregivers. And she's incredibly anxious because she's being confined. His other daughter, who is not autistic, 
and the rest of his children, he invited to go to the beach. He said, let's go to the beach. It's open. Everybody's there. It'll be fun. You love the beach. And his eight-year-old said, Daddy, we can't go to the beach. He said, well, of course we can. It's, it's open. It's, it's, uh, it's safe. Everybody is, uh, is there. Your friends will be there. And she started crying, and she, she gripped onto him, and she said, Daddy, we cannot go to the beach. And he said, why? And she said, because, Daddy, there are people at the beach. That really struck me. And it struck me not because it was an outlier. It struck me because I hear this from my children in my practice and their parents every single day. They are scared. They are so afraid of dying. And as we should know, I certainly do, and it's, it's, it's available on the CDC website, not a single child in the state of California has died from coronavirus. Zero. We also know that children are essentially immune from this, with very, very rare exceptions. And they also don't transmit it to other people, particularly to adults. But we're not acting that way. We're not opening up our country for our children. We're not reopening our schools for our children. We are keeping them locked down or under a very short lease, which is leading to terrible, terrible emotional disorders, panic disorders, social anxiety disorders, social phobia, obsessive compulsive disorders. And we are going to pay the price the longer that we do not reopen, in a huge increase in mental illness in children. That is my main concern right now as a clinician. But the past is the past. What's done is done. But we can reopen, particularly reopening fully with our children without placing anyone at increased risk. And I really urge uh, all policymakers to do that as soon as possible because, as, as uh, Vice President Pence said in his letter, there, there is no uh, second wave, and we can do things safely and appropriately without compromising uh, the physical and emotional health of the population, particularly the children. That's all. If I could just interject, uh, Dr. Simone Gold, I want to add to what Dr. Mark McDonald said, that there was no children in L.A. County. If you go to cdc.gov, there's actually no children who died in the entire country, okay? If you, if you look, they separate by gender and age, and I just scanned it today in preparation for this call. Males under 14, zero, zero deaths from, from birth to 14, and it appears to be zero deaths until age 24, actually. Same thing for females, zero. There, there may have been an update in the last uh, couple of weeks. When I last checked, uh, the CDC has listed three children under age 18 Correct. that died attributable they, to coronavirus. Perhaps that's changed. They didn't. They left out. They didn't fill in the blank. They didn't fill in the number for females, uh, 15 to 24, and it might be that they have no number there. But under age 14, from zero to 14, both genders zero. Thank you. That's very helpful. I'm going to make a note of that. Thank you, doctors. Uh, in a moment, we'll open it up to questions. Uh, just as a reminder to all the media on the call, uh, we open it up. Uh, if you have a question for any of our speakers, please just identify yourself, your media affiliation, and to whom you're directing the question. We can answer other doctors may wish to weigh in. As mentioned at the top of the conference call, we have other physicians on the line who are experts in their fields who may also be uh, able to give us uh, the benefit of their expertise. Uh, you'll get a follow-up, get an answer, and then we'll move to the next question, and we'll endeavor to get all the questions answered on this call. So with that, um, please let's go ahead and open it up
you have a question for any of our speakers and you're a member of the media, please go right ahead. If you have a question for if any of the reporters on the line have any questions for our guests, please go right ahead. Now's the time to ask the questions. If we don't have a, a question, could we allow um, Dr. Moores, Lee, and, and Dr. Zach to sure. go through their experiences as well? Feel free. Okay, let's first go to um, Dr. John Moore, who is an orthopedic surgeon in Sarasota, Florida. And um, it, it, Florida is one of the places that the media has been reporting is seeing an uptick in cases and becoming a hotspot. Great. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, go ahead. Yes, sir, we do. Okay, great. So we know that nursing home patients are at risk because of age and significant illnesses, but nursing home patients are also there because they need a considerable amount of assistance and medical help. So this is the group not to make solitary. Uh, quarantining and isolation is good, uh, like testing visitors that come in, but pure isolation is tough on people, uh, just like our psychiatrist was talking about. Uh, we can move tested people, uh, people who test positive out and, and make sure that people aren't coming in. But for example, I had one patient who was forced to delay her knee replacement despite having intolerable pain for months because of COVID. Upon uh, allowing her to have that procedure, when she was uh, allowed to remove or be removed from the uh, surgery center, it was an outpatient procedure. She refused to go home. And when I inquired, she said that she had been in isolation for months. For her, that was a horrible, distressful, mentally stressful situation, and she refused to go home. And I said, you may be encountering COVID in a nursing center. She said, I don't care. I would much rather be in a nursing center where I can uh, interact with people, I can have assistance. I'm not going home no matter what. So it, it's not innocuous to place uh, older people either in isolation or in a nursing center where they're isolated to their room. Okay, and thank you for that, Dr. Moore. And um, Dr. Lionel Lee is now in Arizona. He was in California up until about two weeks ago, and he has moved to Arizona, so he can compare and contrast um, what he's seeing in the two states and how they're similar versus what the media may be saying about them. Hi, good morning. Can you guys hear me? We can. Yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. Um, so I myself have published, oh, well, I was published in one article about COVID, about this whole the fake racism, and then I was featured at the Arizona Central because my, I was living apart from my family during this whole COVID. Um, so what I was also going to say is that when I was in California, you had the LA Times telling everyone, hey, you know, yes, we're seeing more COVID, but that's because we're testing better. And then all of a sudden, the very next two hours later, you see a tweet by Arizona Central saying that they're blaming uh, the rise in COVID because the governor of Ducey opened up the state too early and therefore this is going to lead to a second wave at the end of the world in Arizona. It, it, it's, it's a complete double standard where they had no qualms saying that California 
more COVID cases than Arizona, but yet it's because we're testing better. But in Arizona, the reason that they're having more COVID cases, not because they're testing better, even though we are, it's because the governor opened up too early and therefore now it's somehow related to his fault or that it's because people aren't doing X, Y, and Z. The, the disingen- I don't know if that's a word, the disingenuousness of the media and the double standard, I think, is a huge concern for me. It's scaring a lot of people in Arizona. Um, the fear I sense here is similar to the fear I sense way back in around end of February, early March in California. And to me, that's mind-boggling because we know more about COVID today than we did way back in March. Um, I, I, I would I would hear people talk out in public or even at where I work, and I would think to myself, "Hey, we need to calm down." I said, "We knew we know that we, there are treatments we can give. There are we know more about the virus today, and yet people are hysteria and panic are taking over even here, which." Again, I, I don't understand. And so with that being said, I think I have seen the opposite, because it sounds like there's a lot of doctors in California on this line. I have seen the complete opposite where the shutdown is, I think, twice as worse, if not more worse, than the disease itself we're seeing. And I think the media is pushing the governor of Arizona to shut down the state. But that is definitely not a good, that is not a good idea, in my opinion. Um, because like everyone else, everyone seems to have uh, plenty of stories and, and true life data where you start to see different side effects from the shutdown. Thank you, Dr. Lee. And the final doctor who we have on is Dr. Andrew Zach. He is in Texas and he can tell um, what has happened in his own family very, very re- in the last three to four weeks. Um, a very personal impact from the fear that permeates our society right now. Dr. Zach? Dr. Zach, go ahead. Dr. Zach, you want to Perhaps he had to jump off. I'm not positive. Okay. Again, um, if any members of the media have questions for our speakers, that's the opportunity. Um, if you're a good bit of useful information and you may have questions, please go right ahead. Well, you may have answered all the questions. Can I jump in again one more time? This is Dr. Gold. Sure. Go ahead, Doctor. I. I I really want to emphasize, um, again, about the testing issue. It bears repeating that the other day I had 11 patients from a family unit all came in to get tested. Ten were positive, and only one had symptoms. That one wasn't even sick enough to be hospitalized. And this is the reason the numbers have gone up. But we have to go back to the data to see who actually gets sick. Whichever speaker said it seems that you have to be ill to get ill with this could not be more accurate. The L.A. County, for example, just wrote in their latest statistics, 93% of people who died had underlying health conditions. That's from L.A. County Public Health. 
The CDC, again, listed by agent. So two-thirds of the patients who die, you know, are aged, in females are age 75 and over, and in males are age 65 and over, with a life expectancy in our country of around 68. That, that is the reality. Those are the facts. More testing, but the serious illness continues to be and will continue to be in patients who have serious underlying issues and much older. And we should not be scaring the general population. Thank you. Can I add a little something to that? Go ahead. Yeah, this is uh, Dr. Williams again. I was the one that said you have to be ill to get ill with this. Um, but speaking of expanded testing, um, you know, many patients, as everyone on this panel will testify, who die, quote, unquote, of COVID are, are not dying of COVID at all. They're dying with COVID. And if you are admitted to a hospital, um, whether or not they're putting them with COVID patients, which there's definitely stories that are pretty verifiable that that's happening in some hospitals, but whether or not they are, they are testing everybody who goes in the hospital repeatedly. So if you're admitted with DHF, and you develop complications and pneumonia and you're intubated and they've tested you on day one and you're negative, they test you on day two and you're negative, you test you on day 10 and you're negative, but day 11, you got COVID, they're absolutely putting that on the death certificate because they get financially compensated for that. So um, they're not only expanding the testing among outpatients who aren't sick, they're expanding the testing repeatedly for patients who are sick, hospitalized for other reasons who often finally become positive on a nosocomial basis. Can I jump in on that? Sure. Yeah, I would agree. I, 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 saw, I saw patients who would bounce back after being admitted, and I, I remember this one patient I had who was admitted for over two weeks, and this patient, they swabbed this patient four times, four times in two weeks. And the, the, finally on the second, on the second they, like I said, they were in the hospital two weeks, came back, the, and, and I said, look, this guy needs to be admitted. They wanted to swap him for a fifth time. And I, and, I, and I said, what's the point? And they said, well, what if he has COVID? I said, okay, look, if you swapped him four times, I don't understand what a fifth swab is going to do. And I, I think this may go along with what the previous doctor was saying, was that there, there, there could be some sort of other benefit or underlying uh, motive for this. And it just, the... The, the medical decision making to keep swabbing these patients is is um, doesn't make any sense. I mean, we would, I would, I mean, you would not X-ray somebody eight times or four times in two weeks if they kept saying they're short of breath. It just wouldn't make any sense. Hey, thanks, Doctor. We'll do a last call for any questions from the media. Um, if you have a question for any of our guests, please go ahead. Okay. I want to thank everybody for participating. Everybody's busy. Uh, really appreciate all the information shared. Um, and uh, we look forward to any follow-up questions reporters may have. You know, to contact your CRC. And uh, I want to wish everybody a good day.